You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Gwen Nichols, who is an executive vice president and chief medical officer at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Gwen, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Ken. Thanks. So I'd like to start out with a less usual kind of question for me, but I'm going to, I'll ask it anyways, because I know your title and I know some of what you do with the LLS, but say a little bit about yourself and just be interested in what was your journey before you went and got to LLS? And then I want to ask you, what's been exciting for you at LLS? Well, I think it's all connected together. And uh, so I was a practicing hematologist-oncologist, as you. I trained at Sloan Kettering and was on the leukemia service there. I then did a 10-year stint at Columbia University where I ran the hematologics malignancies program. So I had a laboratory and I did clinical trial research. I only with enough gray hair and enough career changes under my belt did I realize that every 10 years I get an itch to do something different. And I'd gotten promoted to associate professor and I thought, you either stay here and do this and become a professor or you make a change. And I decided to leave academia and did once again a 10-year stint working at Roche in translational oncology. So designing how agents went from the laboratory into humans for the first time. And then 10 years later, I got the opportunity to come to LLS. And the reason I found that such an appealing change, when you speak to patients one-on-one, and you know this as a physician, it is incredibly gratifying experience to know that you've helped an individual. Yes. When you work in pharma, it's an incredibly gratifying experience to say, you know, what I'm working on now may change the lives of people with a given disease. That's incredibly exciting. But LLS really to me, afforded the opportunity to change the whole landscape of how we treat people with blood cancer. And since that was my area of expertise, it seemed like an opportunity I couldn't say no to. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, it's interesting to sort of hear, firstly, to hear your 10-year journeys. And someone listening to this, I'm thinking, you know, yes, how perfect it is because you've had the bedside, you've had the bench, and LLS is really What I found so exciting in getting to know LLS better is the scientific side and the obviously the support side for patients has always been terrific. And my wife and I personally benefited from it when she had leukemia. But the advancement of science has just been incredible. So let me ask you about that, by the way. When you go to work in the morning, what are you excited about? Well, 
Right now, I'm incredibly excited about our efforts in sort of changing the landscape in pediatric blood cancers, and particularly pediatric acute myeloid leukemia, but childhood cancer in general. I think having, you know, and I'm not a, a pediatric oncologist, but when I was in pharma, I was really discouraged by, and this is not just the company where I worked at. I don't want anyone to think it's just one company. There is a truly a hesitancy to put agents into the pediatric space before it's clear that there's going to be a market in adults. And that's a purely business decision, which as an academic doc threw me for a loop. It was one of the things that upset me the most, understanding I had stock in the company, I was getting paid that way, you know, I wanted the company to succeed, but it just seemed so backwards to me. The people who had the most to gain from a scientific advance, a six-year-old versus a 60-year-old, were not getting access to it because it was financially a losing proposition. And so I realized that there had to be ways we could change that paradigm, both in terms of research so that we were looking at childhood cancer as different than adult cancer, but also the, the regulatory environment and the pharmaceutical environment, what do they need to be able to trust that pediatric trials can be done efficiently and yield results and actually get things labeled in pediatrics? Yeah, yeah. So in theory, it really could be a win-win-win for the patients, for the and families, for academicians, and also for pharma, for all of us. Absolutely. I mean, the people, I can say this because I lived it, the people who are doing the work aren't bad. They're not saying, oh, we don't care about kids. It's, it costs so much, and it's rare. And it, this will hold for rare diseases in general, not just pediatrics, but pediatric oncology, I mean, thankfully, is a rare occurrence compared to adult oncology, right? So it is low on the totem pole, and it means you have to have lots of sites to find a few patients. Time costs money. <laughs> and so yeah. it's what keeps pharma looks and says, we have this many dollars we can spend on this agent. Should we do it for a lung cancer trial that can accrue 200 patients in a year? Or do we do it in pediatrics that'll take six years and accrue 20 patients and probably not get approved? That's the conundrum. And you're not going to convince any business person who's in charge of the stock prices to agree to that. And so it really frustrates the pediatricians and it frustrates the people who see we need to do this differently. So I wanted to ask you to briefly recap sort of the landmarks in ALL therapy, and then particularly with this pedal trial and effort in mind, reflect a little bit on, if you would, on pediatric AML. And then, you know, in a sense, I mean, I'd love your broader perspective in terms of why it's been so difficult, because it certainly has in adults. So I'd love your reflections on the field. The first thing to say is we spent time 
thinking about what we could do at LLS that would be additive to what's going on elsewhere and in other terrific organizations. And one of the things we realized was we were not helping matters with the way we were doing research in pediatrics. And so, for instance, the advances that happened in ALL LLS was certainly supporting research, but that happened in acute childhood leukemias and ALL, but the advances happened because of cooperation amongst the pediatric oncologists and the buildup of their children's oncology group and doing the same trials to answer questions. The tricky part there is the way the advances came was through maxing out available therapies. And even in ALL, new therapies have come few and far between in pediatrics. So some of it is using the adult therapies that fortunately, biologically, the diseases are similar, worked better in kids. And so the great news is with maximal therapy, including marrow transplant for many kids, ALL now has, if a kid diagnosed today, has a 90% plus chance of long-term survival. And that's really extraordinary because it is. Yeah. when LLS started 70 years ago, we were founded by a family that lost their child, their 16-year-old child, to ALL. So our whole organization was started for that reason, to support patients and to do research to help pediatric leukemia. And the survival rate was zero then. It was zero. And it's gone to... 90% plus now. And that really is extraordinary. But I think the important thing to, to talk about is that, you know, for our research to help that, you know, move that better, we're not focusing on get, you know, 93 versus 94%. What we're really needing to focus on is the fact that, you know, 40 or 50% of kids who are survivors, have long-term health complications as adults because of the therapy they were given to cure them. And no parent, and in fact, probably no child, would say, I wish I didn't get treated. They want to live, but we've got to do better. We've got to do the hard work of substituting out some of the most toxic treatments. And that's tricky science because if you have a 90 plus percent success rate, you don't want that to go to 80% by making the wrong substitution. Right. It's sort of like Hodgkin's disease. We have to be very, very cautious how we remove therapies, but it's really important. And we're learning more, of, and this is part of why we have started a specific pediatric research silo, because the biology is different in kids, and this ties us into AML, but in ALL, there we can find out biologically with biomarkers, some of it is genomic, some of it is surface marker and other environment, may even be immunologic factors that will help us understand who are that 10% that don't get a good response to therapy. Focus our 
new therapies on that group and then start thinking, what are the substitutions we can make? Are there kids who don't need to get quite as much toxic therapy? And so I think this is a great place to be in, that we're talking about subbing out therapies instead of, oh my gosh. Now in AML, we have a long way to go. Yep. We're only in the 60 plus percent long-term survival. Uh, some of the groups have quoted up to 70%. That still means that, you know, one out of three kids is not making it. And that's not just getting through the therapy. That is fatal. And so we have a lot of room to do better there. And that's sort of why we focused on that. <laughs> so with that really important background, tell us about the PEDAL trial and the PEDAL effort at LLS. Well, we were boosted by the efforts we made for the BEAT AML trial, mm -hmm. which is a trial. I actually was working in pharma and was invited to the initial pharmaceutical meeting as a pharmaceutical representative for leukemia at Roche Genentech. And so I got to see this as it evolved and then came to LLS. It was a radical change to how we approached treating a disease that pharma was really not excited about working in because, you know, the population is so sick and it's really hard, you know, and this is a population of people my age, uh, older folks that don't tolerate things like a child would. And so it's a hard to treat population. The BDAML trial allowed LLS to be the sponsor so design the trial and have multiple pharmaceutical partners participate. All of their data was kept separate. It was not a comparison, but it took a long while to convince pharma that that model would work. Mm -hmm. And because it did, and because it was cost efficient, and it really put the patient in the center in terms of patients finding trials, a thousand patients have been accrued over the last five years to this trial. So it is a very exciting new way of doing a master trial or a cooperative trial. And boosted by the knowledge that the organization was able to mount that, I said, we need that and more in pediatrics. And so when I came to LLS, Having the pharmaceutical experience I told you about that made me so frustrated about pediatrics, he asked me, well, you've been here 100 days. What are your priorities? And one of the big priorities was we need to change the fact that we don't get drugs approved in pediatrics. And I think I can use the BDAML model as a starting place for a, a master trial effort right. in pediatrics. So fill us in more, though, you know, in terms of pedal. How is it going to work? What are the hypotheses and how are you going to test them? Well, how it's going to work, we quickly realized that it was not going to be as straightforward as taking adults over the age of 60 with AML and offering them the same trial, but with a targeted agent, right? And substituting in the targeted agent because we couldn't mount 
that many patients, even the children's oncology group. And because there is a good success rate in frontline therapy, we didn't think that was the place we should start. We really felt we should start with relapsed AML. And we needed to look at biomarkers and understand what the targets were. And when we tried to do that, we realized that data existed in silos all over the place, and it was not harmonized in any way. And so over the last couple of years, much of our effort has, you know, in preparation for this, has been focused on getting people to agree to, number one, a data dictionary, because the platelet count for a CR in Germany is not the same as a platelet count for a CR in Philadelphia. And this is a disaster because we're comparing small groups in articles that have been published, and the only good they do is for the person who's the first author and the last author, because nothing can be done with that data to move regulatory drug development forward. So we got representatives from many different cooperative groups around Europe, the US, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and said, figure it out. <laughs> Decide what you're going to say a CR is, and we'll bring it to the European Medicines Agency, and we'll bring it to the FDA and get their blessing. And so that's really the beginning of this is how we have to collaborate, is to call CR the same thing all around the world. So I'm assuming they worked it out. Is that true? They did. We have a data dictionary. And then the next step was to say, how do we consolidate data? And we're working with the University of Chicago that has a pediatric data commons. There is a lot of work to get that data into a format that can agree with what they decided in the dictionary. So, you know, we have 20 years of data from the BFM group in Germany. They've been incredibly helpful and cooperative in this. And Professor Reinhardt had to take this data and hand look through it to change, uh, you know, the data points and the dates that data was collected to be sure we were collecting it the same way the children's oncology group collects it. Right, right. And that's the only way it could get consolidated into this data commons. But that work is ongoing. So is PEDAL, tell us more about it, but I guess what I'm looking for, is this patients with relapsed AML, ALL, new drugs, old drugs? Tell us more. Great question. So our focus is AML. But in fact, the trials, as I said, they're not just one type of trial. Some are phase one, so they will be with new agents. And if those are targeted agents, it may include T-cell ALL, it may include relapsed ALL or infant ALL. There are several mutations where it can appear in both AML and ALL as a potential driver. Our goal there is not just myeloid leukemia, but to say, if you have this target and your disease does poorly, 
we want to test it. And that takes a lot of design work to make that work because the results in different populations are different. And that's why we need the data collection so we know what the results are. In pediatrics, we can't tell you what the target is in terms of how well should a kid with this set of mutations do with standard of care. We have that generalized to the whole population, but not characterized by patients' tumor genomics. All right. So by the way, thank you, because as a medical adult medicine oncologist, and I treat a lot of lung cancer as well as blood cancers, but so many of our therapies are now second and third generation. There is a sense of what the response rate should be and duration of therapy. Yes. So thinking about pedal now, you have you know a group of children, unfortunately, let's say with AML who have relapsed or a refractory, you find a molecular target you test that drug. And I'd love for you to tell us what are some of the targets. And then you find that, wow, there's a big response rate. There's a 80%, a 60% response rate. What will happen next? And uh, so in that case, I'm asking you to put on your pharma hat and your LLS hat and your personal hat too. Right. The drug developer hat. (laughs) Well, I think it's a great question, and it's part of the only way this is successful is if pharma is actually in partnership with us. And so, you know, this is not just taking available drugs and using them in a trial. We need to build an understanding with the company about where they are in the development of the drug, what do they know about side effects, and then can we compile data, enough data, about what standard of care outcomes are in that group. There is no collection of relapsed AML data that's big enough to answer those questions. So it's really in people's heads. Well, you know, the MLL kids do bad. That works fine for knowing how worried you should be. But it doesn't work fine when you want to go to the FDA and get a drug approved. So That is part of the promise that we make to the pharmaceutical partners is we are going to build in the way to collect the data to give you a target for your agent. So we know that in kids, and I mentioned MLL because amenin inhibitors are now being tested in the adult space. It's very exciting, but it's also 15 to 20% of pediatric leukemias, including infant ALL, including AML. And so the pediatric population is very excited about menin inhibitors. But we looked at the data that we had, and we had less than 50 children with relapse disease who had gotten treated with different standards of care because they were treated in different parts of the world. So we had an inkling what standard of care does, but that doesn't really cut bait with the FDA. They said, show us more data. So that's what we have to do is build that data so we can build a trial that isn't 200 patients and take 10 years to accrue and have to be at 200 sites. Because, you know, if I put my pharma business hat on, I'm going to say, oh, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to treat adult disease. It's impossible. We can't afford that expensive and long a trial. So the other piece of that, and I want to stress this, is as much as the new agents are important, 
the data collection is even more important because if we learn how to do that successfully, the process of moving drugs forward will not be as cumbersome. Well, and also I'm thinking about the implications in other fields, particularly in diseases that are rare and including in adults yes. as well. So let me ask you, you know, it's such a, to be honest, the things that I don't think about very much. So it's even more fun to ask about them. But I can imagine there were challenges in putting together BDAML, but there you've got large numbers of patients. So there must be even more challenges maybe, doing a pedal uh, with a much smaller number of patients. Is there something about pediatric oncologists, maybe more collaborative? How were you able to do it, is my question. I think we benefited from the fact that many pediatric oncologists, particularly those that treat AML, are frustrated <laughs> because they see the advances we've made in the adults' blood cancers. And they know how to collaborate because all of them don't, you know, there isn't a single institution, pediatric institution in the U.S., who could develop a drug on their own. And so they have to collaborate. And the great news is something like 90% of kids are on trials, at least for their initial treatment of leukemia. So it's a stunning difference for an adult oncologist who struggled to get patients onto clinical trials. The pediatricians do great there, but the problem is they have separate little trials in little groups. That isn't going to answer the question, but I think their frustration level made them willing to hear that LLS was going to be the neutral convener. We were going to be the Switzerland um, that would bring together colleagues from other parts of the world. And, and yes, it is difficult because there are fiefdoms and there are people who are used to working together and people who aren't used to working together and who's going to design the trial. And so we've, we've done a lot of work that I think is really exceptional saying, you guys are our committee, but you need to bring others in. And particularly, you're not writing any trials. We want young investigators, one from Europe or ex-US and one from US on every trial. And they are going to be the medical lead for these trials. It has generated some surprisingly good behavior in the more senior professors because they have to behave well in front of their own mentees. And so I think that and the frustration that they just aren't getting, there are a handful of drugs that have been developed in pediatric oncology compared to hundred, a hundred new agents in the blood cancer space over the last decade. You know, it's night and day. So with PEDAL, you mentioned menin inhibitors. What other targets are in the trial highlighting and the things that, again, LLS and the uh, investigators are excited about? One part is less about what we're excited about, but creating a standard of care. Because we do not have an international standard of care for relapse disease in AML. And we need to find out who does well with that and can get onto a transplant and be cured and who doesn't because that'll tell us what targets in the future we really need to focus on. So some of the work is helping companies that have agents already 
moving along or approved in the adult space do their pediatric work in a collaborative and international one database, one trial, not, you know, a different trial in Great Britain and a different trial in Europe and a different trial in the U.S. So while some of those are not as exciting because as an adult oncologist, they're already approved for us, it's an access question for pediatrics. There are many countries that, including Australia, where venetoclax was developed, that can't get venetoclax for children. And Canada can't get the jazz compound for AML. It is so spotty around the world because the trials haven't been done properly. So some of what we're doing is working on some of these already approved agents to have them be the standard of care so that kids can get access to them in countries where they can't otherwise. And then the targets after that, we're talking to a lot of different companies, but some of them are incredibly rare. And so the other thing we can do is go to the health authorities. For instance, IDH mutants. There's some very great, exciting data about maintaining people who have IDH mutants on an oral regimen that allows an older adult to live with their leukemia. This is a real step in the right direction. Absolutely, sure. IDH mutants in pediatrics are vanishingly rare. The Dana-Farber looked at their last 10 years and saw, you know, less than a handful. So you can imagine big cancer centers only see one or two. How do you ever test that in pediatrics? So while people are excited about it, you know, we have to help people talk to the regulators about how do we make this as available as possible without needing to do a randomized trial because it will never be done. And one other part of this is advocating to the health authorities and bringing the data they need to say, look, we looked at this many thousand relapsed pediatric leukemia patients and four of them had an IDH mutation. How are we ever going to do a 200-patient trial? Please help us create the appropriate regulatory path forward. And not a simple task, but we've had conversations both with the European Medicines Agency and with the FDA that have been supportive. And I think they know when LLS comes that we don't have a financial interest in the outcome So we aren't plugging a particular drug, we're plugging the process. Excellent. And so uh, I think it works for us. (laughs) Absolutely. Gwen, I have to say, there's been such an interesting conversation about the PEDAL trial. So I'd love again to get your, a little bit of your imagination and in terms of what do you foresee your vision about the impact that we might see from PEDAL and from master trials like it in pediatric oncology? Well, I think we don't need to even say in pediatric oncology. And in fact, we have talked to a number of groups that are looking at a variety of rare diseases and seeing how patient support organizations can be a sponsor or can be a catalyst for this kind of a effort because it is hard to organize a patient-centric trial. And so my hope is that we can show it isn't the only way to do clinical trials, but it's another way to do clinical trials. And if we really want targeted therapies 
to succeed, we are going to be, you know, and as we know more about the biology of cancer, we are going to be subdividing and subdividing and subdividing by immunologic factors, by genomic factors, by all kinds of different biology. How do we ever get clinical trials done in these subsets of subsets? I'm hoping that this kind of cooperative effort with data collection and master trials, we're thinking about screening a patient and finding a trial for them as opposed to screening a lot of people to find the patient for the drug, right? Our mindset needs to switch. And that would be my dream is that it's a path forward, particularly for those areas where, and it will help clinical trials. We need to do better in that arena. We need more people to participate. By the way, I, you know, reflecting again on sort of the concept of dividing and subdividing and subdividing, which we're going to see more and more of yes. with the potential of really hopefully curing more patients. Yeah. And so in a sense, this is trying to get ahead of that curve or at least stay up with the curve of what the new discoveries will be. So it's very exciting. I wanted to take the opportunity again, since it's a wonderful opportunity with your involvement in LLS, but tell us a little bit about LLS resources for families, for healthcare providers, and for cancer survivors. Well, thank you for that question, because I think we don't spend donor dollars on a lot of glitzy advertising campaigns. And I know many of you as healthcare providers are sick and tired of our emails that you're getting all kinds of LLS emails, but we don't want to spend those dollars. We want to be wise about what we're doing. And so because of that, we need to find ways to reach out to the communities that take care of these patients to understand all the things that we offer for free to blood cancer patients. And since we're talking about pediatrics today, this is pediatric families, this is pediatric parents, this is siblings, this is even how do you return to school. We have wonderful educational resources. We are really jam-packed with information about diseases, and we have financial assistance of all kinds, including financial assistance for people who are struggling with the debts that happen when pediatrics, oftentimes one family member, cannot continue to work. They have to stay with the child in the hospital. Losing an income or a single parent family, this can be devastating. It's devastating even for families that have good health insurance and good jobs. So we have such an array of resources that I would hope healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, social workers would think of LLS right at the time of diagnosis. One of the other areas that we'd really like HCPs to think about LLS is that we have an incredible information resource center. So these are nurse educators, social workers who answer the phone um, 9A to 9P, Monday through Friday. And they answer questions, find resources for patients, help them in myriad ways as a social worker would, and especially in practices where the social workers are stretched beyond their capacity 
We can be a physician extender. We can be a social work extender. We want to communicate with the nurses, with the social workers, with the physicians to keep everyone in the loop. So this is a free 1-800 number, and we can find patient support groups. We can provide all kinds of great resources for patients that will enhance your practice and take some of the weight off your shoulders. And I think that that extends to our clinical trial nurse navigators. So when I was in practice, and this is in the it was a few days ago. Patients would bring me printouts from the internet of all of the clinical trials that they'd looked up, and they wanted to know, are any of these appropriate for me? That's great, except in my 20-minute office visit, I wasn't going to be able to go through 50 pages of internet. And we all know, looking at clinicaltrials.gov is, it's difficult. is not meant for navigation. It was intended for other reasons. It wasn't built to be a resource for healthcare providers. We have nurse navigators who will help your patient, your research nurse, or you as a physician to find an annotated list of clinical trials. The decision about which clinical trial is up to the healthcare provider. We are not telling patients to go on a trial or not, or even whether a trial is appropriate for them. But our nurses can look and call, is that arm open? What is the accrual rate? Where is it in the development? And they can talk to your patients about clinical trials to enhance what you have already started talking to them about. We want to be an extender and to take some of the work off of your staff calling back and forth to various centers to try and get your patient onto a trial if you do not have an option for them or if you think a clinical trial is their best therapy. And I think a great example is CAR-T therapy. So when that was still being initially in clinical trials, there was a real access issue because there were only certain hospitals that had that open. And the success was such that there were patients and providers who needed to help their patients find a way to that therapy. But it involved travel. It involved hotel rooms. It involved moving a family member. It involved harvesting stem cells, so many pieces to make it possible that many patients were not able to access it who otherwise might. And then many docs and nurses spent hours making phone calls and trying to find an open slot somewhere and figure out how to get their patient there. We can take away some of that additional work and keep you and your practice in the loop so you know I think this is a win-win, and I would hope that healthcare providers would, all you need to do is fax in a form to our nurses, and they will help you and your patient with this navigation and keep you apprised of everything that's being said to your patients so that you have no worry that they're getting misinformation. I have to say, by the way, you know, it's really exciting stuff. And it's been, I'm a volunteer with LLS, and it's been not only uh, informative, but also enjoyable to sort of hear about all that's going on. And not only improving quality of life, but also extending life and finding cures. And it's the reason I think we went into medicine. Yes. So how wonderful. 
This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank again all of you for listening. I have to say part of the fun, part of the enjoyment for me as host, particularly today, was uh, being able to not only talk to Gwen, but also look at Gwen and just the level of enthusiasm and the feeling of dedication. So again, I want to thank Dr. Gwen Nichols, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at LLS. Gwen, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ken, and thanks for giving me the opportunity. And my email is always open. If healthcare providers need to ask something about LLS, feel free to contact me. Thank you. For additional information on the Pedal Master Trial and Children's Initiatives, please visit lls.org slash children's dash initiative. For a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, including activities on treating children and young adults, please visit lls.org CE. And for questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. Uh, And I'll be looking forward to you joining us for our next episode. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.